But as we open up to Philippians chapter 2, you remember last time we looked at verse 5, and um, uh, we want to go back through verses 5 and 8, and it's a very significant portion of Scripture. Um, it describes for us the incarnation of, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the last time we looked at it, we looked at Christ as our model, um, a humble uh, servant that He was. And we, and we looked at it in way of, of, a, of a mirror that we should, as a church, humble ourselves and, and follow His model of humility. And we do that for the sake of the unity of the church. Whenever there's a church and there's, there's people who aren't willing to humble themselves, you have what we call pride. And when two people who are prideful get in a room, look out. You're going to have a fight. And so uh, God calls us to be filled with the Spirit and to be clothed with the humility of Christ. But this morning we want to go back to those same verses. And rather than looking at the, the humility aspect as far as humbling ourselves and the ethical and the moral uh, examples that Christ laid down for us as our model, I want to look at the theology behind these verses because there's a lot of it. It's, it's incredible what the Word of God says in just these brief verses of 5 through 8. And so we want to go back and we want to look at those verses in a theological mindset. So kind of make your, your, your mind begin to think theologically this morning. And uh, obviously that does relate to us practically as well when it comes to our Christian living. Um, but they do give us a standard to follow, but they also tell us the truth of the Incarnation which is probably the greatest miracle that God has ever performed when He became a man in order that He might die for us. And uh, we would do a great injustice if we just passed over this and kind of went on. So let's read together. I'll, I'll read it for you, verses 5 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And I, and I want you to just focus on those verses this morning um, as we prepare to uh, once again celebrate our communion time together. Uh, I just want us to, to remember that there's, there's great value for us to understand what these verses are saying. And um, the last time we looked at Christ being our model, and uh, he's the perfect fulfillment of verses 3 and 4, who does nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, it says, but he's one who will, with humility of mind, regard others as more important than himself. He not only looks out for his own things alone, but for the things of others. He is our example, Christ. But there's more than, than that. And we want to look down this morning and see how when Christ humbled himself to come to this earth, there's steps of humiliation along their way. There's actually eight of them. And we're going to look at some of those this morning as time permits. And we want to kind of walk down with the in the footsteps of Christ and look at what he actually went through when he came down here to earth. So let's begin in verse 6 because we kind of covered verse 5 last time. But verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It says in verse 6 that Christ existed in the form of God. That's where the incarnation begins. 
That's the point where Christ descends and condescends, comes down to our level, you might say, as far as humanity goes. But what does he mean by that word form? And we went over this briefly last time. He uses it again in verse 7, and we're going to see that in a moment. But it's, it's crucial, and we talked about this. The Greek word is morphe, and, and if you stop and you think about it, it's the same word that we get some of our English words. Endomorph, ectomorph, there's various other things. And, and what it does is it signifies a form of something. It signifies a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlines it. In other words, it's kind of a word that refers to the essence of something, the essential being, the nature of something. And here, it's applied to God, the form of God. It means basically his deepest being, what he is in himself, his essential being. That's what he's referring to. And the statement then here is saying that Jesus Christ existed in the essential being, the essential nature of God. That he is always and continuously and will always exist in that essence. And the incarnation is something that can really, you can, if you, if you attempt to explain it haphazardly, you can get yourself in a real, real fix, a real problem, a real bind, theologically. So we want to be careful this morning that we understand what he means here. Uh, and we talked last time, I think, about this word morphe, and, and if you compare it with another Greek word, where we get the English word scheme from. It's translated schema in the Greek, but it, it's the same. We translate it the same in our English Bibles. Whether it's morphe or schema, we tr always translate it the word form. And so we kind of lose some of the meaning here. Because I'll show you the distinction here. Morphe, we talked about, was the essential character of something, what it is in itself. Where schema, that word, talks about basically what the outside form is of something. The morphe of something never changes, but the schema changes. And I explained it this way. I'm a man. I've been a man since I've been conceived. Okay? And I'll be a man when I die. That is my, that is my they morphe. That's, that's what, who I am. That's the essential character of who I am. But now that takes different forms. It takes different schemes, you might say, out in my life. I was an embryo at one time, then I was a young baby, then I was a child, then I was a boy, a youth, a man. And so you see that there's different, the scheme changes, but the morphe never changes. And they're, they're the same word in the English, in our, in our Bible's form, but they're different in the Greek. And it's essential to understand the text, to understand the difference between those two. So morphe is my manhood, but the way that plays itself out, I take on different forms or schema as I get older or whatever. And so when Paul selects the word morphe here, he's saying something very specific. He's saying that Jesus has always existed in an unchangeable way with the very nature and essence of God. To make it simple, he's saying Jesus is God. That's what he's saying. He possesses the very being and the very nature of God. He has always possessed that. He wants us to understand that. And that interpretation of the first phrase is certainly, you might say, even bolstered up or strengthened by the second phrase in which he speaks of Jesus having equality with God. And so he describes, of course, 
what he meant by being in the form of God. He meant being equal with God. Now, why is there so much discussion on this issue? Why is this such a big deal? Why am I spending time to go over this again? Because if you talk to any cult, any false religion, the first thing they attack is the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can destroy that Jesus Christ is God, then you've destroyed Christianity. Because then he's no better than Buddha or anybody else. It's the heart and soul of our Christian faith. And we need to be able to understand and we need to be able to explain it in a way that makes sense. And so when people attack the Christian faith, when forms of uh, religion other than the truth attack us, they always attack this point, the deity of who Christ is, that he is God. Some of you have talked to those who belong to the, the, the Jehovah Witnesses. And their message basically is that Jesus is not God. They're nice people, probably do a lot of good work, but I'm sorry, they're missing it, big time. Jesus is not God. That's what their message is. Now, they don't come out and actually say that, but when you begin to understand what their teachings teach, they don't believe that Jesus is God. They deny the essential essence of who Christ is. And Ken spoke out of the Gospel of John a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, John, in John's Gospel, he has a burden that we understand under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that, that there's no doubt in his mind at all that Jesus is God. He even begins his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, referring to Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was what? Not a God, as the Mormons would have us to believe. You see, all these false religions want to attack the deity of who Christ is. Or the Jehovah Witnesses put in their a God, excuse me. But it says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the New World Translations, the Jehovah Witnesses put in a little a there. And they say, see, we all can become gods. And then to de demonstrate it even more, the Gospel of John says, All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is creator. In verse 14, he says of Christ that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And that glory that he had was of the only begotten from the Father. See, he is God. He has him saying, of course, in the wonderful record in John 8, as you look there in verse 58, that before Abraham was, he says, I am. He takes on him every name of God who said, I am that I am have sent you. And in, in Colossians, in the Apostle Paul, in that first chapter there, we looked at that when we went through there, verse 15, says he is the image, talking of Christ, or exact exact replica is what that word means, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, scientists who study physics tell us that when you look at matter, you know, you have the atom, and you have these things going around, you have the neutron and protons and electrons, all this stuff. And they say, you know, we don't know what really 
holds it together. I mean, it's going around there. It's just, well, one day, Christ is going to let go. And when He lets go, that's when I believe this earth and, and everything that we see will be destroyed because everything will just be annihilated. Just like that. He is the one that holds all things together. So John and Paul boast, both have great evidence about the deity of Christ. And they talk about His ability to create. He gave the evidence of that. He gave plenty of evidence. You, you, did you ever you know, wonder if, if Jesus was God or not? Well, look at how He creates things. Only God can create. Not only in the past, not only at the point of creation did Christ create, but you look at his, the miracles in His life when He was here. He created fish. He created bread. He created an ear when Peter ch tried to chop the guy's head off and missed and took his ear off. You remember that? Uh, he created new legs, new eyes, new ears, and a new mouth. He created new internal organs to replace the diseased ones. These are all acts of creation. Because He is the Creator, He is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. That's where it all starts. It all starts with the recognition that Jesus Christ existed in the very essence of the eternal God. That's where it starts. That's where our faith begins. So Christianity is, is simple and yet it's profound. And the truth is that God became man and we now follow the path of His incarnation as we look back through these words, these, these verses in verse 6. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard it, it says, equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't consider it something to be held on to. He didn't consider it something to be clutched. That word equality is interesting too. It's the, the Greek word is isos. If you know anything about science, it's kind of an interesting word. It means exactly equal in size, quantity, quality, character, number, whatever. But it means to be equal to. We use it even in our English like some of you are in the science, you remember what isomer is. It's a chemical molecule having a very slightly different structure, but it has the exact same uh, chemical uh, element and weight. It's equal as something else, even though it's a little different in its structure. We could say that its, its schema may be different, but its morphe is the same. You think of isomorph, that word, it means to have equal uh, forms of something. You think of isometric. It means to what? Have the same measurements. The isosceles triangle. Remember from your days in school. It's a triangle that has two equal sides. The word isos means equal. And what he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is equal with God. He's exactly equal with God. He is in the form of God. He is God. That's what Paul is saying. In fact, literally in the Greek, in verse 6, it says, He did not regard the being equal with God. He is equal with God. So the first step down, you might say, in the humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very first step, I put it down there in your notes, that He didn't, he didn't grasp it. He didn't clutch it. He didn't seize it. He didn't hold on to his exalted position. He didn't possess it as something not to be yielded up, even though he was God and equal to God in every way. 
There's no question that Jesus claimed all these things. Those who listened to him even knew that he claimed to be God. You, you remember in, in John 5.18, it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. Well, do you remember why? Why were they seeking to kill him? Why were they so upset with this man? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, if you read the context, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And they were offended at that. So when any of those people come knocking on your doors and say, well, you know, Jesus isn't equal with God. You can reply, you know, it's strange to me that you don't even know what his worst enemies knew about him. The apostate Christ rejecting Jews were bound up in their self-righteousness. But they didn't miss what he said. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. He was claiming to be equal with God. No one can miss that when you read through the New Testament. In John 10.33, the Jews answered him again. He says, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. Why? Because you are being a man, make yourself out to be God. That's what his enemies said about him. They knew exactly what he was claiming. And he said to them in reply, he said, You ought to look at all things I do and know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And he even said to his disciples, Have I been so long with you? And yet you don't know who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Thomas in, in, in chapter 20, verse 28, says, My Lord and my what? My God. It's interesting. The Mormons, when you ask them about that, they said, oh no. You know, Thomas was bowing down and he said, my Lord and my God. That's how they explain it. He wasn't looking at Jesus when he said, it doesn't say anything about that in the text. But that's how they explain it. It's ridiculous. But here's the first step. Although he had all the rights and the privileges and honors of being God, he didn't hold on to them. He didn't clutch them. What does that mean? It means it meant, originally meant robbery. A thing gained by robbery or a thing that was seized, taken away. But it also came to mean anything that was clutched, anything that was embraced, anything that we held on to tightly, that was prized, that was clung to. And what he's saying is Jesus existed as God, but he refused to cling on to that favored position. He refused to cling on to all the rights and the honors that went with it. He, he was willing to give them up. And that's the incredible message of Christianity. It's not the same as other religions. That's what sets it apart. In India, you can go and watch people trying to appease a God so he won't be angry with them. In Christianity, you see God looking down on wretched sinners who hate him and are his enemies. And he's willing... And he, he does yield up his privileges and he comes down for their sake. That's the attitude of humility that begins in the incarnation. It begins with the unselfishness of the second person of the Trinity. And then what follows? Look at verse 7. Profound statement in verse 7. But made himself of no reputation or he emptied himself.
And this, 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 it's a, it's a profound statement in the original language, but emptied himself. And, and basically, it's introduced by a Greek term that means this. Not this, but this. When he says, but emptied himself, he's really saying, not this, I didn't do this, but this. He didn't think this was something to be clutched, but rather, on the other hand, he emptied himself of it, willingly. It's kind of a, uh, you know, it's a contrast here. The being equal with God didn't lead him to, to, to fill himself up. It led him to empty himself. And that verb empty, called the kenosis theory, the word kenosis, kino, is the verb in which we get this whole theological um, issue here. And it's, it's what they basically call the, the self-emptying of the incarnation. The doctrine of the kenosis. When you hear that, they're just talking about Christ emptying himself. And it's very graphic expression. It means he emptied himself. It's talking about self-renunciation. A refusal to use what is rightfully his. That's what he did. A refusal to cling on to his advantages and privileges as God. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine that. I mean, God who owns everything, who can do everything, who has a right to do everything, who is fully satisfied within himself, but he emptied himself, it says. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean he wasn't God? That's the first thing I want you to understand. He did not empty himself of God. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He did not empty himself or he would have ceased to exist. And if he had ceased to exist... So would God the Father and so would the Holy Spirit because their life is one life. So he didn't empty himself of his deity or any portion of his deity when he came down here to earth because he couldn't be less than who he was. Now this is the important point here and I want you to, to catch this. See, he is eternally in the morphe of God. He's eternally that way, in the essential nature of God. He did not cease to be God. In fact, that's very clear in Luke 9.32 when he was, went to the Mount of Transfiguration, remember, and pulled back his flesh and they saw the glory that was there. See, he didn't exchange his deity for humanity. That's what some people think. He didn't stop being God and start to become man. If he had done that, he would have died on a cross and stayed there in the grave because only God has the power to die and in that dying, conquer death. Only God could create and do the miracles that he did. Only God could say the words that our Lord said. He did not stop being God. I want you to understand that. Nor any part of his divine nature at all was given up. None of it. He couldn't cut out some piece of who he was and lay it aside. doesn't work that way. Now, there are those who say that. I don't see how that could happen. Either he's God or he's not. Because you say, well, what did he give up? Let's look at that. First of all, he gave up his heavenly glory. He gave up his heavenly glory. He dove into the water and went all the way down to the, 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 the black, cold water, to the slime and the mud and the clay of this world. And that's why he cries out in John 17, and he says, Father, restore me to the glory I had with you before the world began. Glory when he was face to face with God. He gave up that glory for the muck of this earth. You know, back home we have a pond.
in Pennsylvania in the summertime, we used to go down there and swim. And, you know, we'd, we'd swim to the bottom of the pond. And it was nice, cool, clean water. You could even drink it out of it because it was fed by a spring. But you get down to the bottom and there'd be this black mud clay. And we used to, you know, sometimes we'd go down there and we'd get handfuls of this stuff and we'd bring it up. And then we'd rub it all over our bodies. And then we'd wait for it to dry in the sun. And, and then we'd, you know, kind of, we'd look really weird. It looked like you just, you know, came out of the grave or something. But I remember that mud, I mean, even after you washed yourself off, it was still in your skin. It was still in your pores. It was just such a thick, gucky stuff. Well, that's what he did. He left the glory of heaven. And he dove all the way down to the depths of this sick earth. He gave up the worship of angels that were adoring his, the presence that, that, that in, in his presence. He gave up all the shining uh, brilliance of the glories of heaven for the dark prison where he was kept before his death. You know, he, hem he emptied out of his glory in that sense. Another way to look at it is that he covered up his glory. He veiled it. They saw a glimpse of it at the Mount of Transfiguration. And there were glimpses of it at his miracles that he performed. There were glimpses of it in his attitudes and his words. There were certainly glimpses of it even on the cross. And there's a, there's a really manifestation of it in the resurrection, in the ascension, his glory. But he emptied himself of some of the outward manifestation and the personal enjoyment of heavenly glory. Secondly, he emptied himself of his independent authority. Now, I don't claim to understand how the Trinity operates, but I know it operates in perfect harmony. I don't know how, but it does. I know that in perfect harmony, there would ever, never be any discord between the different individual personages that make up the Trinity. There'd be no disagreement. But not, nonetheless, there's some mysterious way here, which I'm never going to understand. He completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. Completely. I don't understand how he could do that because he was still God. And you start to think about that. After a while, you, you just go crazy. But, you know, for the most part, it says that there was a point when he laid aside voluntary exercise of his own will. And he learned to be a servant. And he submitted himself. It says that he was obedient. It says in verse 8 that he was obedient. In the garden, he says, not my will, but what? But thine be done. He learned obedience by the things he suffered. Verse In, in Hebrews 5, it says that. Uh, he, he said that I am come to do the Father's will. John 5, 30. So he set aside his independent authority. Thirdly, he set aside... The, his, the prerogatives, you might say, of his deity. He voluntarily set aside the use of his attributes. You say, well, did he stop being omniscient? No, that means knowing everything. Did he stop being omnipresent, being everywhere at the same time? No. Did he stop being unchangeable God? No. He didn't stop being anything. He just didn't use some of his attributes while he was here on earth. Some have said that he gave up the 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 uh, the, the, the Attributes of his deity. Well, we know that he was omniscient. We know that he knew everything because he knew what was in the heart of man. John 2. I know he was omniscient because he saw Nathaniel when he wasn't even where Nathaniel was in his human form. He didn't give up any of his deity, but he gave up the free exercise of those attributes and he limited himself to the point 
where in Matthew 24, 36, he says, No man knows when the Son of Man will come. Not man, not even the Son of Man. So in some form, somehow, he restricted his omniscience. So he gave up some of these prerogatives of his deity. Fourthly, and this is kind of a neat one, he gave up his personal riches. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, Though he was rich, speaking of Christ, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. Now, he became terribly poor in this world. I don't think there's anybody in this room that is, was as poor as our Lord was. He had nothing. Not a zip. Zero. And then lastly, as I mentioned, he gave up his, his favorable relationship with God. Because the Bible says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And as a result, he says, My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. He gave up that favorable relationship. That's part of his riches. And now he gave up the full expression of his heavenly glory and the full enjoyment of it. And though he gave up his independent authority and the exercise of his own will and he learned obedience, and though he gave up all those prerogatives to express all the majesty of his own attributes that he could have done, and even though he gave up his personal riches for the poverty of this world, and he gave up his favorable relationship with God, and he was made sin, it's important to understand that he never ceased to be God. He was fully God. He remained fully God. At any moment in time, he could have just blasted his enemies off the face of the earth. But he didn't, because the Bible says that he emptied himself. And there's a sense in which he emptied himself, not by giving something up alone, but he emptied himself also by taking something on. Look at what verse 7 says in our text. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it says, not only did he empty himself, but he took on the form of what? A bondservant. He gave something up, but then he took something on. And it says the form of a servant. In a sense, his self-giving, self-emptying, the setting aside of, of himself, the emptying of himself, he took on something else. It says the form of the servant. You notice that word keeps on cropping up. Now here, it's the word morphe. In other words, the essence. In other words, he didn't just look like a servant. He just didn't put the cloak on of a servant. This was who he was. He became a servant. He literally took on the essence of a servant. In Mark 16, 12, the, other, the only other place where this word morphe is used, it says that, that Jesus takes on the resurrection morphe, the nature of a resurrected body. But here he really became a bond slave, a servant. And he came to serve God's will and God's purpose and submit to God and therefore submit to the needs of men as well. It goes back all the way to Isaiah 52, verses 13 and 14, which identifies the coming of the Messiah as a what? As a servant. 
Really, the servant became poor, became a slave. Imagine, this is someone who owned everything. But he came into this world and he was borrowing everything. He didn't own anything. He had to borrow a place to be born. It wasn't much of a place at that. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. Many nights he slept on the Mount of Olives. He had to borrow a boat to cross the little sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being welcomed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He had to borrow a room for the Passover because he didn't even have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. You see, the only person who had the right to everything in the world wound up with nothing, zero, because he became a servant. He came into the world as king of kings and lord of lords, rightful heir to David's throne, as well as God in human flesh. But you know what? He had no privileges. He had no privileges at all in this world. He came as a servant. Nobody gave him anything. Nobody entrusted him with any treasure. Nobody gave him a home, animals to ride. Nobody gave him land to call his own. Nobody gave him anything. He borrowed everything. He served everyone. He had no advantages. He had no privileges. Now remember who we're talking about. We're talking about God. This is the God who created the universe. This is the God who created you and me. The Bible says, by Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made. He came down another step, says in verse 7, in His road to humiliation. It says, and being made in the likeness of men. He's just like men. He, has given, he was given the essential attributes of humanity. Homeomate is the, is the word. It means the same as a man. He became man. Truly human. Really human. But he didn't stop being God at any point in time. He didn't take on somebody else's body. He isn't, I used to say as a youth pastor, yeah, Jesus is God in a bod. That's really not an accurate description of who God is. He is God-man. And man is more than a body. All the essence of humanity, body, soul, mind, truly human. That's what Luke 2.52 says. That's why it says he grew in wisdom and what? Stature. He was growing as a human. In Colossians 1, verse 22, it says, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body. He had a body like your body. Like my body. A fleshly body. He's not some phantom. He had a real body. In Galatians 4, 4, it says that He was made of a woman. Made under the law. In Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 14, Since the children share... In the flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise also partook of the same. The same flesh and blood that we have, Christ had. I don't want you to be confused by this, that when he came into the world, he came in and the flesh that he took on was normal flesh. It felt all the effects of the fall. It was not some 
you know, pre-fall humanity that he had. Like Adam's pre-fall body. It wasn't that way. He had a body just like ours. In the sense that he knew sorrow, he had tears, he cried, he had suffering, he had pain, he had thirst, he had hunger, and he even faced death. And death can only touch humanity that is touched by the fall already. Because before the fall, there was no death. And so he felt the effects of the fall without ever knowing or experiencing or touching the sin of the fall, which is just really incredible. And Hebrews says that he partook of the same as children who take flesh and blood. He made, he was made like his brethren in all things. Why? That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's what it tells us. How is he going to know how we feel unless he feels what we feel? If he feels it in an unfallen humanity, he won't feel it because it's not there. If you're not fallen, there is no pain in an unfallen human. Everything was perfect then. He was human in the sense that he experienced all the test and temptation of men. That's why we understand he was so faithful to the task before him. That's why we call him an understanding high priest. In Hebrews 4.15, says he never sinned, yet without sin, never sinned. Couldn't sin because God can't sin. It's that simple. He came down all the way down. He took on the form of a servant, a slave. He was made in the likeness of men. Another step, verse 8. It says, "...in being found in the appearance as a man." Well, isn't that the repeat of verse 7? Made in the likeness of man? It's not. It has a different meaning. It says that he was discovered to appear as a man. And now it looks at his humiliation from the viewpoint of the people who saw him. Yes, you see, Christ was God-man. But as people viewed him, they saw him as the appearance of a man. And the word here is schemate, scheme. Remember? The outward form of a man. They looked at the outward form and they saw a man. They would see him as a man. There's also much more that they didn't see. And that's an implied here. And that's part of his humiliation that he went through for you and I. He came all the way down to be God-man, but they never saw the God part. They looked at him, and what they saw was a man. The schema of a man was all you saw. See, it'd be one thing for God to become a man. That is humbling enough. But for God to become a man and for man to think he is only a man, that is truly humbling. That's humiliating. He did all the works and he said all the words. He performed all the miracles. And they said, this man has a demon. That's what their answer was. And the Jews says, said this, we know this man. We know his mother and we know his father. We know where he's from and we know and, and, and where does he come off saying, I come down from heaven. Where does he get that? That was their attitude toward Christ because they saw him just as a man. That would be so humiliating. 
Their minds were darkened by sin. They recognized only His humanity. They missed His deity completely. They didn't know who He was. How humbling would that be? Here He is, God in human flesh, King of kings, Lord of lords, the majestic King of the universe, the Creator of everything, and they didn't even know it. And they treated Him not just as another man, but you know what? It even got worse. They treated Him as the worst of men. They treated Him like a common criminal. And you say, well, didn't He fight back? The answer is no. He went down even lower. Look at verse 8. It says that He humbled Himself. And being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. He humbled himself under that treatment, that unjust treatment that was dished out to him. He was already humiliated. It would have been enough for him to be willing to clutch on to his own rights, but then to empty himself of the exercise of those things, and then to come all the way down as a bondservant, even though he was king of kings and lord of lords, and then to be made in the exact image of, of the human beings around you and to suffer what they suffered and feel everything except sin, and then to be seen as the other man is just another man. But then even further than that, to be seen as a common criminal. Wouldn't that be enough for anybody to say, you know what, wait a minute, I've had it. I want my rights. I am God. This is going to stop right now. I mean, I would have done something to fight back, but he didn't. He humbled himself. There's a lesson there for us. How many times do we face injustice? Maybe at work, maybe in our marriage, maybe somewhere. What's our attitude to be? Should it be one of pride and I demand my rights? Well, if we're going to follow Christ, the answer is no. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves just as Christ humbled Himself. Look at Him at His trial. The humiliation was unbelievable. And He never answers a word. Never. Never opened His mouth. Finally, when asked, he admits who he says. He said, yeah, you said it. That's who I am. <laughs> they're mocking him. They're punching him. They're pulling his beard out. They're treating him like the scum of the earth. And he is God. But he doesn't say a word. And they pass him from this mock trial, phase to phase. And he, he doesn't say anything. He just accepts it. He doesn't demand his rights. What a picture of humility. Could he go even lower? He does. Verse 8, one more step. It says, becoming obedient to the point of death. You can't get much lower than that. You think somewhere short of that, he would have said, hey, stop, that's enough. Zap, you're all toasty critters. I'm out of here. Somewhere in the middle of trial, you know, you think that he would have blasted them somehow. But he didn't. Somewhere when he was being mocked and dragged half-naked through the city of Jerusalem with a cross on his back, you think he would have thought and said, hey, you know what, it's not worth the effort. I want them to know who I am if I'm going to die. He never did that. Somewhere on the cross, you think that he would have screamed out who he was, but he never said anything. He was obedient to the point of death, the Bible says. All the way down to the muck and the slime and the ooze of this, this deep, dark world in order that He might bring us up out of that. 
And Paul says, not just death, but look at what it says, the very last statement there. Even death on a what? On a cross. It calls the attention to the shocking feature of Christ's ultimate humiliation. This is the bottom. This is the end of the line. Not just death, but even death on a cross, crucifixion, excruciating, embarrassing, degrading, painful, humiliatingly cruel. It was devised originally by the Persians and perfected by the Romans. It was only fit for a slave and for the worst riffraff of society. The Jews hated it because they remembered in Deuteronomy 21-22, says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Paul quotes that in Galatians 3. They hated it. They despised it. This is the ultimate in human humiliation. There He is, God. This is the God who created us, created our universe. Somewhere along the path, you think He would have looked around and said, You know what? These people aren't worth redeeming. It's too degrading. It's too humiliating. I don't want to go through with it. He didn't do that. That's called the grace of God, beloved. That's called the love of God for sinners. And He did it to die for you and to die for me. You know, this is a plan that no man would devise. You stop and you think, if you had to do this, if you were going to advise Christ how to come to earth and all that, you wouldn't pick this way. That's why the Bible says, unsearchable are your judgments and your ways are past finding out. We don't understand why God did all this. We orchestrated God coming into, into earth. I mean, it would have been you know, fine linen and, and wonderful places for Him to stay and more than enough food than He could ever even dream of eating. He would have been praised and worshipped and lifted up and exalted, but no, God's plan was different. And it really shows for us the love that God has for the sinner. You know, we watched a video last Wednesday night on sharing our faith, and we're going to be watching some more, uh, not this coming Wednesday because we're taking off, but in, in the Wednesdays after that. And I really encourage you as a body that we do not ever want to grow complacent in our desire to see the lost come to Christ. That, that's why we're here. That's why, why Christ died, because he loved the sinner. And sometimes we get so caught up in our theology and, and so caught up in, 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 in that's good stuff to be caught up in, but we forget that there's a lost and dying world out there quick on their way to hell. And we forget that it's up to us to take that message of love and forgiveness of Christ to a lost and dying world and see God transform their heart. Because God definitely loves those who are lost, those who are sinners. If he didn't, we'd all be in trouble. So I encourage you in the coming Wednesday nights, a week from Wednesday, we're going we're to show a couple more of those videos. And they're very practical. They're ways that you can share your faith. It's the very practical way of, of showing you how to do that. Actually, you bypass the intellect and you speak right to somebody's heart. This morning... We prepare our hearts for our communion time. Hopefully you understand that I couldn't preach this message without having communion. I just couldn't do it. And so uh, this morning as we bow our heads and bow our hearts before God, I just want to pray and, and uh, um, 
and we'll share it together. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. Lord, forgive us for not being willing to humiliate ourselves in the way that Christ humiliated himself for us. Our pride gets in the way so often. Lord, we pray for any in our fellowship this morning who have not confessed Jesus as Lord. We come who have not come to Him for forgiveness in life. Lord, I pray that as our heads are bowed, we can't close this message without asking you in your own heart to look to God. And, and just perhaps the Spirit is moving in your own life. Maybe this is the time for you to pray and ask God, God, I, I see what you've done in Christ. and You've done it for me. I ask Christ to forgive my sin. I ask Christ to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. If you can pray that prayer this morning, that's a prayer that He will answer. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you in a way that only He can. Repent of your sin. Christ has died for you, but if you reject it, it doesn't do any good for you. You say, well, how do you make this my own? This faith you're talking It's by faith. It's believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith involves turning from your sin and turning to follow Him. You can pray a prayer. Lord Jesus, I, I turn from my sin to follow You because I know that You died for me. And He'll answer that prayer. That's a prayer that He will truly answer. Lord, we pray this morning for our communion time as we come before this. And Lord, we know that uh, You're such a gracious God to us. And Father, we pray that if there's anything that would hinder our walk with You at this time, that we would confess that as believers. Our communion time is an open communion time and that it's open for those who are part of the body of Christ. You don't have to belong to this church as a member, but you have to belong to Christ's church. You have to acknowledge Him as your Lord and Savior. That's what the Word of God says. And that's an issue between you and God to decide. But your Word says that we should come before you freely, but we also need to examine our own hearts. And so, Lord, we do that this morning. And I know this morning we're going to do our communion time a little differently. We're just going to open up the, the trays here. And as we play through a song, as you feel led, you can come up and partake of the cracker and the juice and go back and partake with your family or whoever's next to you or just by yourself. I'm going to make it a very personal thing this morning. And Lord, we just thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the humiliation that you've gone through. Help us never to lose sight of that. And Lord, help us to cling on to the truth that you are truly God. And you will always be God. But Father, for a brief moment in time, you chose to undergo the humiliation that we saw this morning. And for that, we're eternally grateful. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Pray that you speak to people's hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.